We are live from Alts LA. Bill, John, thanks so much for coming on the Alco's Mainstream Podcast for this special live edition. Thanks for having me back, Michael. Our pleasure. Absolutely. Well, tell us a little bit about where you are. We hear some background noise. There's clearly a lot going on. So tell me what you're doing, who you're with. The post-COVID norms are in the past. There is a buzz here. It's awesome. The room is set up for 750 people, but uh, standing room only. So it's nice to be back in the mix. And I think this might be our eighth year, and we did it virtually during COVID. But now this was an opportunity to get not only our voice and message back out there, but coincided with the release of our new seminal piece called The Portfolio for the Future. I'll let John explain it a little bit, but we had a blog for many, many years called All About Alpha. When the allocator thought about the low-hanging fruit of alpha, the endowment model is now 55 years old. Private capital, and now I'm talking about growth, venture, uh, buyout, has gotten very, very efficient. And the ingoing multiples are approaching 20 times in the buyout space. And alpha is still there, but the concept of how you harvest it has gotten a lot more difficult. And that was really the lead up to why we wrote this portfolio for the future. And we chose this platform as an awesome way to release it. And John, uh, you took the stage initially and uh, did an excellent job of laying this concept out. So maybe I'll let you do the 2.0 here with Michael. Yeah, it was an exciting morning. There's no doubt about it. And I'll just echo the, the buzz was definitely palpable. I've been to several events. I think I mentioned to Michael in preparation for this, but nothing felt close to normal quite to this scale. So people are through the how do we hug, how do we handshake phase. And now we're actually enjoying it again. So Yes, very exciting morning. As Bill said, we released uh, a flagship report we've called Portfolio for the Future. And to briefly describe the, the motivation and the, the premise to this, the idea is that we are entering a new era that is going to require fiduciaries, investment professionals, to work harder and smarter to design more sophisticated portfolios that are going to be all-weather and resilient through a much different set of inputs and constraints than we've had over the last 40 years. And that sounds like a long time, but we've actually had this really abnormal four-decade run where we've had little to no interest rates starting in 81. We've had very little inflation until last week. There's been a 40-year hibernation of any level of price increase. And as a result of all of that and this huge intervention from the central banks, we've had free and limitless access to capital and credit. And so the 60-40 model, the whole argument this morning was, we've had it pretty darn good. This has been the easy button on steroids. And getting to that actuarial rate of 7.5% or whatever bogey you're working on, with all due respect to all of my colleagues around the industry, has not been as challenging as it normally is, we would argue. So what does that look like going forward? And so we have designed this roadmap, a blueprint for how to go about navigating a much more challenging headwind, we're now calling it. Five marks and 
just briefly what those are, are more diversified. Diversification is back as simple as that sounds. It's been out of favor or unnecessary. It's back. Where's that diversification coming from? Secondly, less liquid private capital, mostly. And we can talk about any of these, Michael. The third is rooted in a fiduciary mindset, getting back to where the profession started, which is an ethos of putting the client first and having that outcome-based mentality flow through all of your apparatus internally and the way that you express yourself externally. Fourth is actively engaged. The universal owner is here, and it is demanding a very different influential voice and a seat at the table, the whole ESG gold rush, and how do we handle that and balance that against the other constraints. And then finally, just to finish it off, operational alpha. The biggest secret in our business is that there's a whole lot of alpha and sustainable outperformance to be gained from things that are less sexy, like culture and governance and technology and networks and operational efficiency. And those are underrepresented, untapped, secret sauces of performance. So that's our story. And it was, as I said, it was a fun stage to do it. And it opened a lens of discussion for the rest of the day. There's a lot to unpack here. I want to start from the beginning. Who are the types of people that you've gathered in this room? Because you're talking about critical, critical questions for the asset management and alts worlds. So, Michael, I'll start with my panel, which I think is representative of, of how rich this conversation was. Follow John's opening remarks, which was a great setup. Uh, I had Ariel Babcock, who is uh, the head of research for FCLT. Ashby Monk, who is the executive director at the Stanford Global Project Center. Elizabeth Burton, who's on the CAIA board. She's the CIO of ERS, uh, State of Hawaii. And then Mark Ganson, who was a board member of CAIA. John had worked with him when he was on the board of the CFA, former uh, CIO of CalPERS way back when. But he's currently the CEO and CIO of the Common Fund, which was where the endowment fund was born 55 years ago. I had 40 minutes with this group, and I could have done it for four hours, but we covered a lot of territory in a short period of time, and I think it just set the day up for success. We're able to take some of these same themes John talked about, and one I'll just tee up. John mentioned that we talked about on the panel where you describe alpha as undiscovered beta, and Mark took that analogy a step further to say, Today's alpha is found in this beta continuum. And you can turn beta into alpha by allocating across this continuum all the way out to exotic beta and cryptocurrencies. I think it was a bit of an eye-opener. And the fact that we have people like Mark and Elizabeth as an example that are having to put this into practice every single day as very senior CIOs really enriched the conversation. One thing here that is important to hit on for all of our guests is that you're talking with people who have billions and billions of dollars. There's probably collectively trillions of dollars in this room today that can allocate assets to private markets. And you guys are talking about things that are so critical to what it means to make alts go mainstream and what it means to think about how portfolios are going to change. You mentioned some of the things that you're talking about in the portfolio of the future. What are the types of things that you think need to happen 
both on the LP and GP side in order for more assets to get directed into the alt world. And I know that that can be split up into everything from ESG to crypto to the venture world to private credit. And it's around productization. It's around the maturing of managers. If it's something like crypto, which is five or six years old when it comes to the, the state of the crypto fund manager market. But what are the types of things that you'd really distill down for those who are in the alts world as lessons learned from being in a room with trillions of dollars of allocators who are actively looking to allocate to these markets as they think about how to better their portfolios. So, Michael, I'm going to distill it down to the least common denominator, which is one word, transparency. And then, John, I'll hand it off to you. If I had to have one thing in the room, transparency, full stop. Uh, before you hand it off to John, I want to know why transparency. Well, you look at uh, GP on one side, the LP on the other. Uh, the GP has an agency problem. It, they have partners, they have shareholders, they're a for-profit entity, but they have clients to whom they owe a fiduciary responsibility. And Ashby Mug talked about this as well. Let's, let's put the risks and the transparency out there. People may not like the answer, but let's own it. And unless we own it, we're always going to be delivering less than perfect solutions to the end client. And I think we talked about this on an earlier podcast, Michael, that uh, if I hire somebody to do a service for me, I could pretty quickly tell if they've done a good service or bad service by looking at the output. It doesn't work that way in the investment game. It happens over many, many investment cycles. The investor has to remain patient. Maybe the style is out of favor during that holding period. But again, the ability to communicate and manage expectations through a transparent, ongoing discussion is critically, critically important. And I would just add, Michael, just as a preface to my answer, you're right. This room is very diverse. 750 people, maybe half allocators, the other half some combination of GPs, service providers, consultants, intermediaries of some sort. And then, of course, one of the stakeholders that's not represented here is regulators and maybe academia. And to your point, this is going to take a village. And that's critically important is that, that to some extent this guide is saying, as capital allocators, this is your roadmap. But in many ways, as a profession, which is a collective that's dedicated to this higher purpose of serving the client, we all play a role here. So that's the preface. Funny story, um, a little bit of a, a rabbit hole maybe to answer your question, what needs to happen? So 1985 in Hawaii, quick riff on my experience, 1985 in Hawaii, I'm there with my parents, we're at this luau, okay, and we've got the, the, the buffet and our CEO, Bill, who's on here, likes to tell this story in a different way, but they've got the buffet and you go through and you choose your, your protein and your vegetables and your bread and your soup. You sit down. About 30 minutes later, Michael, out come the sword swallowers, the fire eaters, and the jugglers, and they coincide with the dessert table being brought up. And I liken that to the way, unfortunately, we think about alts. It's the crazy stuff that we do on the side. It's all that non-conventional fire swallowers that add a little bit of octane to the portfolio. We've got to blow this whole elementary system up where we talk about the conventional 60-40 and then how much of that extra juice do you want. But to your point, I think it starts with the building blocks and the, the taxonomy of how we even think about portfolio construction. In, in the greatest of ironies, Kai has been in the business of getting rid of the alternative in alternatives. Every asset class across the risk premium is an alternative with a capital A. Let's start thinking about it that way. That, that, that's a really 
important point and you're not the only one who said this. You could have been on the podcast that I did earlier today with Jane from Martlet and the co-founder of Pamco, where she said it's alternative. It's not an esoteric asset. It's something that is very much a major part of people's portfolios, but it's more about alternative risk exposure. That's what alternative is. Do you think that allocators are beginning to understand that? Because another thing that seemed to surface as a theme was that there's really a blending between public and private markets. And that portfolio, the equities exposure is both the case in public and private markets. They're relatively correlated to some extent. That's why you need other pieces in an alternatives bucket to get a broader diversification, that 60-40 portfolio. What are the types of things that allocators in the room are talking about and thinking about as you think about the portfolio of the future? So uh, I think this whole idea of the blending, the grain of what has been historically arbitrary lines that our industry apparatus is really good at drawing lines in between types of what we call asset classes to help the consultants to make hiring processes easier, to make org charts make more sense, uh, to help with peer reviews. Our entire trellis is set up around these asset classes. But yes, to your point, to Jane's point, the reality is, is that particularly on the equity side, the risk on portion, the beta risk on portion of your allocation, you can have equity ownership across venture and seed into growth, into what we've traditionally called buyout or late stage. So why do we set up this arbitrary event or episode where I now have to sell because you've put me in a box that I'm late stage or I'm growth. We've seen a few interesting changes. This started 20 years ago. Very few know the pioneers. TCV Ventures was really the first one that started this life cycle investing. And then Altimeter, Brad Gerstner, was the one that kind of modernized it in, in many ways. We saw the Sequoia Fund move into 50% of their balance sheet is now public equity. Shocking. That doesn't sound like Sequoia, does it? And then on the other side, you've got my neighbor, when I started in my career, the stodgy old, God love him, Wellingtons of the world that are the epitome. You open the dictionary to long only public equity, it's got a picture of the Wellington founding fathers. They've now moved and done very well with a $5 billion exposure to private equity. And the whole idea is, I knew these founders when they were young individuals and they had this germination of an idea. I walked arm in arm with them through all these stages. Why do I have to sell them now? And I think they bring up a really good point, and it goes back to what you said earlier, Michael. The asset class model, allocators start as risk allocators, not as asset class allocators. And that sounds like a nuance, but it's a big difference in how you think about your job. On that point, what you're touching on is, one, allocators have a certain mindset. Two, you touched on the fact that now funds are thinking about both their risk and exposure across the spectrum of public-private markets. Do you think that the fund of the future has to change as the portfolio of the future changes? Do you think we'll see more platforms like a Sequoia in the VC world, for example, try to become a platform that goes across private and public markets. You mentioned Altimeter, Tiger's another example. There's many crossovers now because they know that value can be captured in either public or private markets. How do you think GPs are responding to innovations in their business model in response to all of the things you mentioned about the changing mindset of an LP or allocator? Well, I think, Michael, John just gave us a few examples. It's here, and I think it's the camel's nose in the tent. 
And I think if you talk to a lot of these allocators, they want good, solid GPs on the other side of the table. And if they can ploy their trade in the buyout and the growth equity space, can they not then do it in venture? And if I've got a very good venture manager and they want to have more permanent capital, should you not ride that up through growth into some kind of a strategic buyout or an exit? I don't think there's necessarily anything inherently wrong with that, as long as you, the buyer, as the LP, understand what you're getting and you embrace it. Now, if you're going to put this manager into a very strict category and you accuse them of mission creep after they started to maybe hold too long or their market cap has gone up, that's a discussion you should be having when you enter the strategy, not when that day arrives. And I think establishing these strategic relationships is going to be much more important. So I don't want to sound like a cynic, but if I were to say a somewhat cynical question, it would be how much of this is driven on the GP side by two things. One is the ability to generate more fees by growing AUM. And two, the commoditization of maybe venture and growth, as we've seen with private equity. We've seen the black stonification of private equity becoming a multi-strategy alternative asset manager. You can build a massive business, you can go public, you can have hundreds of billions of dollars of AUM, Apollo, KKR, Blackstone, Carlyle, et cetera. Do you think we are seeing the same in other corners of the alts universe? Because from a business model perspective, it makes sense even if returns change because as you get bigger funds, returns may change. Yeah, I think your point about the large GPs, especially in the buyout space, they've probably moved more toward the asset gathering phase of this business model as opposed to the value creation phase. That's not necessarily good or bad, but you should understand what it is. And even in the Kaya curriculum, we talk about a commitment strategy. If you want to have 20, 30% exposure to private markets, how do you do that through to the J curve and capital being called, capital being returned? But you probably more importantly now have to have a sector strategy. Where are you going to extract value? I think you're going to find it less interesting in the big buyout space where the multiples are 20 times EBITDA, where you may like that partner, but you'd rather be playing maybe in the small mid-cap space in markets like India. So I think you've got to have that type of a sector strategy as to where you think you can find and add value. And unless you have that, you probably should not be in the private markets in the first place. So I'm up two minds about this, Michael. I think it's such a good question because on the one hand, it's easy for me to throw out the success stories like Gerstner or Sequoia or even Wellington, the more recent examples that have crossed this transom effectively. But I think as Bill said earlier, you've got to know what you're buying. And more than ever before, I joked on the stage earlier that in the old days when Arthur Rock was raising money or the original Sequoia or Kleiner Perkins, just give me a bunch of money and I'll go find any business model that looks interesting. And now these GPs, they're raising dollars for ball bearing companies in Des Moines. It is rifle shooting. And LPs want that. To your point on risk factors, they have a better grasp a better, what Ashby Monk likes to call GPS, global positioning system of how their risk factors are exposed, that they can slot in a very specific exposure, and they want to slot in a very specific exposure. So if you're Sequoia, I think you've got a really good argument that, look, we've had, G, we've had LPs with us that want to be in Coinbase. They want to be in Stripe. They have been in Stripe. They don't want to exit just because the value creation has turned to the public markets. They want to stay. They don't want that event and the capital 
administrative change of going to a different fund, coming the dollars coming out and in. So I think they've got a client-based argument for it. But I think a hedge fund going to the private capital world and the deal sourcing and the process by which adventure capital, you might call it, or private capital takes shape, that to me is a trade and a skill set and expertise that doesn't come easily. I don't want to suggest that you can only go one way in this, meaning private to public, but I, I don't think this is going to be the new shiny object. I think LPs will take, to Bill's point, a very cynical and careful and deliberate view of these one-size-fits-all claims. As we think about changing LP behaviors and what they're interested in, and also GPs thinking about their business strategies possibly changing, how do we think about talent acquisition and the way in which GPs think about upskilling either their own team or themselves as they think about their business model changing? I think a couple things on that. Such a good question. And we had this discussion with a few allocators yesterday. I'd say two things. One is cross-training, this idea of riding along across. I, I mentioned the mice of asset classes or the less relevance of asset classes and this idea that the credit team knows a little bit about what the equity team is doing. And they're competing for that last allocated dollar. They're actually all vested and engaged. And that's what diversity is all about. The infrastructure and the credit folks and the equity folks and those that have diversifying strategies under their responsibility, do they understand the dynamics of those other asset classes and the deal structure and the sourcing process that goes along with it? So how do you ensure that you've got a team that can engage across what we have traditionally called asset classes? That's one, because we're overly specialized. We tend to overly bucket both our assets, as I said earlier, and now our talent. The other thing I said, which is related, is this idea of systems thinking, which is part of what we wrote about in this paper, too, which is this idea of the GP, by definition, is responsible for asset gathering and selling a certain vehicle, a certain strategy to a certain LP to fit into a certain slot. And I get that. And I understand the, their role in the value chain. That said, they need to put, be able to put themselves into this systems lens and rubric that the LP across the table from them has to be thinking about. Our, our discussion about risk factors and how does their strategy, which risk factors is it competing with? Is it complementing? Is it diversifying against? Where's their duplication if this is a credit strategy across their risk on equity exposures? Where's their sector duplication if this is a tech private equity fund? Is this simply just more risk on that is effectively putting their public equities on steroids and creating more undiversified risk on strategy. So I think this idea of thinking like an allocator, which is something that we say as a tagline for, for Kaya Association, is something that needs to be become pervasive in the thought process and the worldview of how a GP approaches LP communication too. There's a lot to unpack there. Where I want to go with this is, what does the portfolio of the future look like in your mind? Because the way in which LPs think about things will probably drive the way in which GPs think about things. That's what James Keenan from BlackRock mentioned, is that we try to fit how we think and see the world with what LPs want and how do we productize for them. So as you think about 60-40 no longer, in your mind, what does the portfolio look like in the future? What's the breakdowns, roughly speaking, between different asset classes or sub-asset classes within the alts world? I think it's fairly simple, Michael, it's, uh, and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to answer your question by not answering your question. And what I mean by that is 
I don't want to take the bait or the temptation to simply use the asset class model and bucket to simply give greater weight to what we now call alternative. I think it's as simple as this. I think what is the purpose of the asset or the fund in your particular portfolio? I think it comes down to three parts. If you want to have buckets, it's growth. How are you participating in the growth of the global economy? And that comes through public, private equity, largely. How do you gain yield or income? And that can come through multiple things. Clearly, historically, it's been through public fixed income. But now we've got this onslaught that used to be an appendage to the private equity that is now a $1 trillion asset class in its own right called private credit, direct lending. The banks stopped lending to the middle market and the growth companies, the kind of less than $100 million companies. And now this private credit explosion has created yield opportunity that didn't exist and certainly hasn't existed given the lower for longer yield mentality. Stable cash flows like infrastructure might also fit into that argument or structured products like royalties off of music you might think of as providing yield or income. Again, you would have bucketed it in some weird unconventional asset class, but really it's doing the same thing historically your 40 did. Your fixed income did. And then finally, the third. So you've got growth, you've got yield, and you've got inflation protection. And what's in that, quote, bucket? Well, obviously, it's things like real estate. Uh, It could be gold. And guess what? It could be digital assets. Some digital assets, Web3, DeFi, are in your growth portfolio. And this is where you've got to be careful to not get caught up in this and in labeling everything because some of that ecosystem, the picks and shovels, belong in participating in the growth portfolio, whereas maybe Bitcoin with its scarcity mentality belongs in your inflation hedge. So this is what we meant when I started the first answer to your, the first question, which is a more sophisticated, more thoughtful, more creative way to think about constructing portfolios is actually ensuring, just like the cruise director on the love boat, the asset walks in, which room are you telling them to go? and not allowing these kind of typical identities and bucketing mentality to dominate the portfolio of the future. One thing there on the portfolio of the future that you're getting at is people are going to need more sophisticated ways to understand and analyze their portfolios. How does data and analytics play a role in all of this in a way that maybe hasn't before? Yeah, I think fascinating question. You might remember that the fifth mark is called operational alpha, and one of the elements or subcomponents of operational alpha is how do you weaponize technology? And I know we talk about this a lot, but the the reality of using artificial intelligence or alt data or natural language processing and these tools now that can bring to life data so that a human can assess it, provide context to it, and then create an insight around it. And that's the beauty of the human-machine combination that we are far from calibrating perfectly. There's some hedge funds that are systematically completely dependent on on those algorithms. And then you've got the old traditional folks, the world I grew up in, the Boston asset management business where I cut my teeth, that is completely dependent on the human judgment and fundamentals. And I think data is now going to be sourced in a way, unconventional data. ESG is simply just alternative data. It's simply non-traditional data that is providing a different lens. Ashby Monk gave this amazing illustration, and this is not on video, but imagine when you go to the optometrist and they're sliding those lenses down and they pull one up and they slide another one down, which is better, A, B. You're looking at your traditional P&L data. 
and you say, oh, that's interesting, then you slide that up, and you put the climate, the carbonization element down, and you look through that data, and then you pull that up, and you say, well, what about the, the, the bore diversity? How are they thinking about providing a little bit of fast-tracking of their decision-making process through diversity of thought and decision-making? You slide that down. And what a great illustration to the way that data, alternative sources of data, will ultimately be combined to, to provide a holistic pattern that is going to sharpen your focus on that little farmhouse, if you think about the optometrist. That, to me, is the holy grail of the calibration, and I think it's coming. I think we're still early, as you know. The data, if you think about ESG, is uncorrelated. It's inconsistent, but that's what makes for dislocation alpha opportunities. Ultimately, we're going to have some standards come in. We're going to get better at assessing this for their own purposes, providing their own particular approach based upon the capital needs of that LP. But I think this is the next bastion of opportunity in alpha. It's fascinating to hear, and it'll be interesting to see how the fintech community reacts to that and thinks about innovation in that regard and how to actually build product like this to help move the alt space forward. That feels like part of the next iteration of the world of alts. I just want to close up. Are there any thoughts or takeaways that you want to share with GPLP community that they can action from all the things that you've heard today and all the work that you do more broadly and have, I mean, put a ton of work into the 60 page plus report, the portfolio of the future. There, there's a wealth of knowledge in here for people to, to gain. It was the third of five marks, but in some sense, they're rooted in a fiduciary mindset. I just want to underscore because to some extent, we could have told this narrative in a way that you have the foundation of fiduciary mindset and then the four marks are the pillars that sit on top of it. And that illustration would have worked just as well, to some degree, maybe even better. Because first of all, we're never going to cross this transom into a much more difficult, sophisticated, challenging, headwind environment that I described at the beginning of our discussion if we're not starting with our purpose. And going back to this origin, Sir John Templeton once likened what we do, strangely, to ministry, where there's this agency exchange of, I'm giving you, I'm a client, I'm giving you LP and by extension GP trust and the stewardship of my nest egg and my future and my retirement dignity. And in return, you're promising me loyalty and standards and ethics and my expertise. And that social contract we often forget, particularly if you're one step removed from the client. So I would just echo, and I know it sounds like platitudes, but none of this is going to be done well. We're never going to asset allocate well. We're never going to harness technology particularly well. We're never going to incorporate this importance of this new pre-financial set of data called ESG well if we don't start with what is the ethos of putting clients first and how does it thread its way through not only how we compensate and recruit and create values and investment beliefs internally, but also how do we express our fees? How are we transparent about what we're paying for with those fees, how do we think about and communicate our edge and when we're in and out of favor and our purpose and that risk exposure profile that we talked about that LPs are now demanding. I think that the message to your question I leave with is that we first got to go back to basics. I think the word finance, just to end with this, the root of that word is fini, it's a French word, complete. It's not an end in itself. It's a means to an end. It's a means to complete the delivery of investment outcome. That's what we are as an industry. We are a means to deliver a service. And let's get back to that first. 
and then we can fill in all the process stuff around the edges. That's a fascinating way to end this podcast, thinking about how to construct both a business and a portfolio. And that's everything from hiring to operational diligence and and the way in which you run your firm, the way in which you have culture, the way in which ESG impacts both internally and externally. There's so much here that what you just said covers. Fascinating way to end this podcast. Thanks so much, John, for coming on the podcast. Same with you, Bill, and for all that you're doing for the industry to move it forward. It's our pleasure, Mike Land. So glad to be on the pod. I'm a regular runner, and the AGM is typically my companion. And so it's good to actually be a guest. Love to hear it. Oh, happy to have you back anytime. This is fascinating. All right, Michael, you take care. Thanks for covering us. Thanks a lot, John. Thanks for listening to this episode of Alt Goes Mainstream. I hope you enjoyed it. You can find more episodes of the podcast at any of your favorite podcast sites, and you can read more about alts at my Substack, altgoesmainstream.substack.com, and follow me on Twitter at, at Michael Sigmore and at GoesAlt. Thanks a lot, and have a great day. We're going